0: you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, we have been going through Second Peter 1 throughout the summer. And uh, next week will be our last visit back to Second uh, Peter. And then we'll spend three Sundays looking at Psalm 8, which will take us into September. And then we will come back to Mark at the beginning of October. We're actually in the middle of a series in Mark. Uh, We've done the first two chapters and we'll be starting up in October in Mark chapter 3. Your ability to sing the songs that we have sung this morning meaningfully. So if you're able to sing the words that we sang together this morning meaningfully from the heart, it's only because you have been listening to a particular set of words. We sang about them this morning as being ancient words. We sang about them this morning as words that... We believe, um, but they are a certain set of words. And words are central to our purpose as a church, as we repeat every week, right? We are becoming disciples. We are living as a family of disciples. Disciples are who they are because they listen to who they listen to. Disciples listen carefully to a certain set of words. Well, those outside of Christian hope are who they are because they listen to certain sets of words as well. And the difference between the words that we listen to or don't listen to, according to the Bible, is a life and death difference. And that's where our text takes us this morning to the center of that life and death difference. Let's stand together. First Peter or Second Peter 1. Let's get those flipped around. Second Peter 1. And we're going to our sermon will be on verses 18 and 19. I'm going to read into it from verse 17, but our text for this morning really doesn't start until verse 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mount. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which... You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have already been singing to you this morning The new song. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in resurrection life being present in the believer right now, here this morning. We've already been singing about it. From Old Testament perspective, it's a, it's a new song. From our perspective, it's ancient words, ancient words. But we have sung them to you in a way very similar to the way David sang to you, Asaph sang to you. We sing to you, O Lord, we bless your name. We know who you are. We make glad to you because you have brought us to the day of salvation. Lord, we pray that you would use your church in the world to recount your glory among the nations. Your glory as seen in the forgiveness of sins where your grace shines in the cross of Jesus Christ. Your glory that shines in the grace of the simplicity of salvation. Whoever believes in his heart shall be saved, you tell us. Lord, we praise you this morning for coming and presencing yourself within us, that your spirit takes these ancient words and uses them to make disciples of us, to save us, to give us everlasting life. Lord, the gods of the world... are idols. They're useless. They're helpless. They're hopeless in the face of life and death. But they are worshipped by most of the people in the world. Sometimes they take the form of a political ideology. Sometimes they take the form of a sport or an entertainment industry. Sometimes they take the form of something as wonderful as simply a family. But all of them are empty. Only you, who made the heavens, are actually worthy of praise. You are worthy of our honor and majesty. Strength and beauty are recognized and celebrated as we worship you this morning. And so, Lord, we give you credit for the fact that there are people on the earth in your image. We give you credit for having glorious strength. We give you credit for the glory of your eternal and everlasting name. And we offer you the gift of our love and service And we offer you our praise. Father, we bow down and we worship before you. Here in this service. In our hearts and with our hearts and minds. And we praise you. Lord, for those who are here this day in trouble. May you enable them to see. That there are no troubles. That are too great for you then there are no problems that leave you helpless and hopeless. For you are the one who has made the universe firm. And you are the only reason that it continues and that it's still here. And you take care of us and you make judgments about your people with perfect uprightness and truth. And so may we join the entire created order this morning in rejoicing in you, in praising you, in calling out to you, and resting in you. For you will ultimately be found to be the judge of the world, and you will judge it in righteousness. And you will judge us as your people according to faithfulness, the faithfulness that you have to all of your promises in Jesus Christ. Now come and meet us through your Apostle Peter, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. So it is among the great central questions of life as to who ultimately we are listening to. Whose words, whose words do you allow to give the most fundamental shape of your life to? Whose words do you measure yourself against? Draw your hope from? that's the question. Whose words? Now, we are a people constantly listening to somebody. In fact, as we've said many times, but it's just simply undeniably true in the Western world. No generation of human beings has ever, has ever received as many messages as we have in our lifetime. None. The younger you are, the longer that'll be true of you till you go out the other end because it's almost certainly just going to keep up. And the avenues into our hearts and minds will be expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded. Um, whether it's television programs and whether it's YouTube videos or whether it's countless apps on your phone and this podcast and that podcast and this publication and that publication no one no one has ever been more subject to messaging than we have and the effects of it are dramatic drastic to take a to take a wide sweep for instance just take one one issue, one question uh, by way of example. It came to mind this week as I was reading the book of Hebrews, actually finishing it off the early verses of uh, of chapter 13 and it struck me, looking back over, I've, I've watched a lot of uh, sort of crime related dramas over the over the years. Uh, when we were up in Canada, you didn't have very few television stations. There wasn't much. I probably watched two hours of television a week, but I watched the Rockford Files on uh, on Friday nights. Um, I got home from uh, my job at the grocery store, and on the west coast, the Rockford Files was on at nine o'clock, and, uh, and I watched the Rockford Files, and and, uh, and and Jim Rockford was a an affable, likable uh sort of guy, um and uh freewheeling. You couldn't help but sort of uh like him and 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 root for him. Um, but of course in biblical terms, uh he was a serial fornicator. Um I mean he was constantly uh, having sexual relations randomly with various friends and clients um, along the way—that's um, uh, uh, that's fifty years ago. Uh, now, since that time, just about every just about every major hero in America's crime dramas has been a serial fornicator. Sex is always outside of marriage. It's always random. It's usually superficial. It's just about in every show. Somebody, somewhere, just about. Every once in a while, a character shows up that has some objection to that. That character's always judgmental, Hypocritical and crazy. Uniformly. And story after story after story after story spins out like this. So, how do you think about sexuality? Oh, way different than they did a century ago, I'll tell you. Unimaginably differently. Unimaginably differently. Because of this. So we slowly listen and watch and listen and watch and listen and watch. And then there you are, reading the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 13, where you read this. What a different perspective. By the way, all, fornication is fun, it's fulfilling, it's, uh, it's deep, it's authentic, it's all things good. It's all things good. And then you read this. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. What a different perspective that is. Like, what? That's crazy talk. That's divine revelation. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, the marriage met is to be undefiled for fornicators. And adulterers. God will judge. That last little line is just striking in its simplicity, isn't it? It's such a given. You know, it's, it's like, okay, the sky is blue, life is short, God judges fornicators. There you go. That's how life is. That's reality according to the Bible. But that's not a message that you hear very often. And so the question is, on that and a range of other issues, who shaped your life more, Hebrews or Hollywood? Who shaped the way you think about really central questions in life? Hebrews or Hollywood? Who are we listening to really carefully? See, Peter's point here in 2 Peter 1 is we need to be people who, because we live where we live, and you can't avoid where we live, We need to be people who listen to the word of God very carefully, very carefully, studied concentration with a consistent effort. It's the essence of what it means to be a disciple. As I've stated our thesis for this morning, A disciple is a person who listens carefully to Jesus. And really to the word of God more generally. But a disciple is a person who listens carefully. You might even say most carefully to Jesus. Defines their life accordingly. Um, We'll come at this from three angles this morning. Number one. There is a voice worth listening to. There is a voice worth listening to. Verse 18, we ourselves, the we is Peter, James, and John, Mount of Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And the voice that they heard, of course, said what we read uh, by our way into our text this morning from 2 second, second Peter 1, 17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he, and he stops sort of at the end of the ontology of it. So that statement, who is Jesus? This is my beloved son Whom I'm well pleased. That's who this is. That's who this is. What's striking, though, is that when you go and actually look at the gospel accounts, he cut off the last three words of the voice that came from heaven. All three gospel accounts include the words that Peter cut off. Why would he do that? would he cut off the words? Here's Matthew's account. Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Chopped off. Listen to him. Mark 9, 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Luke chapter 9. Little commercial here for Sunday night service. We'll, we'll soon, soon be reaching uh, Exodus 19. And 20, well, that's where this, all this imagery comes from. This cloud that overshadows Peter, James, and John is to make them think of the cloud that overshadowed the mountain where Moses was, the giving of the law. That's the backdrop to this image where the word of God was given. And here it is again. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now in those three gospel accounts, out in the margin... Out in the margin, at least of the NA27 uh, version of the Greek New Testament, they all have it all three times, all three times. And this will be a this will be a little commercial for Sunday school, uh, Terry's Sunday School, where we're in the Book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15:18 uh, uh, 18, or 18:15, 18, Deuteronomy 18:15, which says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. It is to him that you shall listen. So the Lord God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses eventually. Be sure, be sure, be sure you are really listening Carefully to him. Now interestingly. At the close of the book of Deuteronomy. And of course it's really really plain. That Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy. He doesn't write Deuteronomy chapter 34. Because it records his death. Deuteronomy 34 records his death. But not only that. Deuteronomy 34 gives you a clear indication uh, that it's being written a long time later. A long time later. um, At the close of the entire prophetic era. Because here's what it says in Deuteronomy 34, beginning in verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And here's the editorial comment made from quite a different perspective. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the prophets. A prophet never arises in Israel who's like Moses, whom the Lord spoke to face to face, whom they are to specifically listen to like nobody else. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, to all his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. There has not arisen a prophet since an Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Until Jesus. See, See Romans 18.15. When I'm going to raise up a prophet. When he comes. You be sure to listen to him. There's a big hint here. This is why Deuteronomy 18.15 is in the margin. Of all those texts. Mark's version. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Think Deuteronomy 18.15. Listen to him. Listen to him like no one else. Here's the ultimate focus of the listening of the people of God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's a voice that we're supposed to listen to. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. However... He didn't quote that. That's the party lops off. What's that about? Well, that's about where he goes next, really in the next two points. Um, secondly, then, there's a voice that we need to listen to very carefully. There's a voice that we need to listen to very carefully. Very, very important. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now if you if if you've got ten good commentaries on Second Peter at home. All ten of them will tell you that it's not at all plain to them, though they all eventually usually have a, a theory that's worth listening to, what the first little phrase of this means, but we have prophetic word made more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. It's, it's said that way because the the form of the Greek word is definitely comparative. It's better. Uh, so we have we have the word of the Lord made more fully confirmed, more believable, better. Better. Better than what? Well, likely in the context, better than the word that Peter, James, and John heard from heaven. Now, wonderful that you heard words from heaven. I've never, word heard, I've never heard words from heaven. Um, and, and, and Peter says, well, that's okay. That's okay because the prophetic word, like the word of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and, uh, that you have access to at, at home with your Bible, that's actually better. That's better than the word that I heard from heaven. And that's precisely where the problem arises. Well, how can it be better? I mean, it can be just as good if they're both the word of God, then they're both ultimately worth listening to. How could the word of the prophet be better than the voice that comes from heaven? That's the problem. That's the problem. And various people take various angles on it. And several, though, several of those commentators, they think that an obscure translation of the New Testament uh, came out in the late 1800s. The second edition of it uh, came out 120 years ago, uh, 1902, the New Testament in Modern Speech by R. F. Weymouth. Some of you have probably had that in your library. A Weymouth translation of, of the New Testament. It used to be more popular than it than it is now back in the '60s when there wasn't many of those when I was growing up, a lot of people would have had a Weymouth around because it was a modern English translation and And there weren't very many of them now there's been tons since, and so you know Weymouth has more or less just disappeared um and nobody thinks about him or cites him um anymore uh, but here's how here's how Weymouth translated this and he and he did it uh not out of the top of his head or some magical thing he paid attention to a uh a standard work on uh uh, Greek authority of the last couple of uh, centuries called uh, Liddell-Scott. Uh, the Liddell-Scott ex- lexicon which studies the use of Greek language in the early centuries. And and he said, you know, this, it was taken this way from time to time, and this way makes sense. And so here's how he translated verse 19. And in the written word of prophecy, we have something more permanent to which you do well to pay attention. It's better. It's better. But it's better in what sense? Well, in this sense, Peter, James, and John, they don't get to hear the voice from heaven again. They heard it once, and they heard it in like a two to three second window, and then it was gone. Now, they remember hearing it. They remember what was said. At least they think they do. They can't go back and check it. They can't hear it again. So, what Weymouth thinks, Peter's saying this. The word of the prophets is just as authoritative and it's more sure in that you can go back and look at it over and over again. It's still there. Still there. Our men's groups uh, reading Calvin's Institutes together will start back up in uh, in October and filled, 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 filled with Bible references. Calvin's looking at the same text that we're looking at. Oh, slightly different translations, but you can you can go back and and see exactly what Greek and Hebrew text he was looking at because we still have it. You know exactly what he was looking at. That precise, exact word, and that's your great, great, great advantage. Is that you can listen to the word of God, and you have it in a In a permanent form it 's as much god 's word as a voice from heaven it 's as supernatural as a word from heaven, but you have it, you have it now Weymouth says a more permanent form made more sure well it can 't mean more reliable god 's word is god 's word you you don 't want you know uh, and, and it can't mean, well, it's better to have a written word of God. You know, like with a, uh, where, 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 you, where you say to another person, well, okay, uh, you know, uh, I'll agree to that, but you need to put it in writing. Why do we need to have it put in writing? Because we don't trust what you say. You can't have that attitude toward God and say, it's better because we've got Him in writing. Now he can't try to squirm out of it as he's prone to do. No, no, that's blasphemous. Can't mean that. And if you read all those commentators, you can see, well, nobody has anything that makes better sense than Weymouth. Just in his translation. And several of them uh, went with him. Several of them that are certainly on the more conservative end of things went with them but it's more permanent. We've already referred to this, but it's, it's right here on the surface of things in the text. And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. good to remember that we live in a dark place. The average modern person has no realization that they really, really do live in an exceedingly dark place. I mean, several of you, uh, you I know, uh, got to experience my hacked email earlier in the week where the things went out and, and somebody from probably from somewhere in Asia trying to get you to go far enough to, to help the church get gift cards out to people suffering at home and to get you to take a picture of that card and send them to them so that they can just steal your money and then they bless you in the name of the Lord for trying to help. Oh, bless you if you'll do this. Bless you. Oh, bless you. Bless you. We'd love to get your credit card. We'd love to financially ruin you today. In Jesus' name, if we can. Um, So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But we're going to hope for our best. By the way, if you ever get anything from the church and it wants you to take a picture of a gift card, it's not the church. It's the darkness. It's the darkness. We live in this dark, dark place. We don't think we do. We think No, no, no. We live in an evolving place. We're biologically evolving. We're socially evolving. We're cutting edge. We got brand new values. We used to think about this way for the last 2,000 years. We got brand new ways of thinking of everything. They're shiny. They're right off the modern mint. How wonderful! How wonderful! And very soon you may not even be able to think about a job in certain segments of our society unless you'll sign on to that. That's darkness. That's darkness. We are in a dark place. Eric mentioned how familiar the Psalm 119, 105 text is. But this part, right? The better we know something, often the more thoughtlessly we review it to ourselves, right? Your words lamp to my feet, light to my path. There you go. Words like, you know, lamp to my feet, light to my path. You pick up on the fact that assumes, that absolutely necessarily assumes the same context that Peter's assuming right here, darkness. You don't need a lamp or a light to find a path On a sunny afternoon in the Badlands, with the sun baking down on you. No need for a light or a lamp on a sunny afternoon in the Badlands. Or here in Sioux Falls, or anywhere else. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path assumes darkness. Darkness. Without the light, you won't be able to see the path. And if you don't believe me, just look at the way of thinking of the average American. They're lost in the dark. They are lost in the dark. Thy word is a lamp to my feet. And a light to my path. And we need to pay. Very careful attention. Very careful attention. To this light. That shines. In the midst. Of the darkness. He uses the same. Uses the same participle exactly. That's used in that text. That I'm constantly taking us back to in Hebrews chapter 2, right where we have to pay much more closely attention to the things that we have heard. last we drift away from them, we've got to pay extremely careful attention or you just drift off. You'll start thinking about all of those the perspective of all those television shows you watch. All that stuff that you've heard at the university. All the really cutting-edge things that the supposedly the smartest people in the world are coming up with. And the more it costs to listen to the light, the more you'll be prone to try to find a way. So you better pay really careful attention to the perspective of Jesus. Otherwise, because Paul's using that same participle as well 1 Timothy one four 1 First Timothy 4:1 now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to by paying much more careful attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons say, well, what would that be? That would be things like, fornication is harmless and fun. And anybody who has any questions about the ethical nature of it is certainly a judgmental moron, which is the official position of the United States of America. Thirdly and finally, there is a day of ultimate illumination coming. There's a day of ultimate illumination coming. Last little piece of verse 19. Until the day dawns, the day, until the day dawns, and the morning star rises. Now, that's the kind of thing where, you know, it really, 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 really helps you if you're a Bible reader, right? If you're a regular Bible reader, it's a little commercial for being a regular Bible reader, for reading your way through the Bible. Once a year, we'll say, well, I, but there's a whole lot of stuff I don't get much out of. That's okay. Keep on going. Do your best. Get as much as you can because one of the things that'll happen is if you do that, you do that, when you're reading in 2 Peter and he talks about the day, well, there are just almost countless times they'll say, well, that must be the day of the Lord. Yes, that must be the day of the Lord. Mentioned all over the place throughout the Old Testament. Just two of them. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as the destruction from the Almighty will come. Verse 9 Until the day dawns, Uh, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. Now again, Nobody in American society worries about a judgment day. That's a joke. That's a joke. That's that's the Saturday Night Live church lady. Good grief. What a joke. No, silly. Ridiculous. Not for disciples. Not silly and ridiculous, but rather inevitable and inescapable. Inevitable and inescapable. The morning star arises in their hearts. Jesus returns. Jesus returns. Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. But a star shall come out from Jacob. It's the morning star. Star come out from Jacob. Jesus comes out from Jacob. Jesus is an Israelite. That's the point. Jesus is an Israelite. The star arises. And his scepter shall rise out over Israel, and he shall crush the foreb of Moab, and he shall break down the sons of Sheth. Numbers 24, 17. In other words, he'll be the judge of the nations. Yep. Jesus, until the day dawns, enlightens our hearts. Enlightens our hearts to what? To reality to the reality of the prominence of Jesus, the reality of the darkness around about us, to the reality of what the world faces and how desperately it needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reality of what a dangerous moral and spiritual place we live in, the reality of how terribly it is important that we pay careful attention to this message. Because if you don't, the messages of the world will just sweep you away. That text in Hebrews 2.1, the last verb is a passive form of verb. let you just be carried off. You just be carried off. I know all kinds of people who profess faith in Christ, They're they're absolutely in step with everything going on in our culture right now. In Jesus' name. They feel no tension in it. Yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and of course I think that anybody ought to be able to love whoever they want. That's the wonderful thing about love. Well, you can't. No, sure you can. What about the, with the Bible? <laughs> it's old. It's old. The Bible. <laughs> Come on. The Bible. What need do you have the Bible if you have regular access to the view? See? This is our way of thinking. This is our way of thinking. You know, it's really deep and insightful. Uh But it's where we live. You be sure that you're among those who pay very close attention to the words of Jesus as you walk through this dark place. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us to hear your voice and make us into those who pay very careful attention to what we've heard and evaluate everything that the world says to us and around us and about us by what you say. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.